Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, speak in your power. Speak through the Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts that you might convict, that you might challenge, that you might comfort, and that we might be brought face to face with the living God through Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Elijah's my oldest son, and he's on a basketball team this year and for the first time where it, it travels to tournaments sometimes. And so early on in the semester, we, went, we, we as a family went to this first tournament that we had ever been to as a family since he's our oldest. It was in Bettendorf. And when we got there, and I'm shocked that no parent has ever given me a heads up about this, who were going ahead of me a little bit. When I got there, I learned in order for me to watch my kid play, I had to pay $10 for each adult and $5 for each child. Now, I, you know, often you don't even bring cash around you anymore. So I didn't have the money with me, but of course, conveniently, they had an ATM machine right next to them that I had to go take out cash. And of course, I find out as I take out cash, grudgingly, like I have to pay $3 of a service fee to take out money to pay, you know, $30 in entrance fee to go watch my kid play. Now, somehow, by the time I had gotten the money, my two younger kids had already managed to get into the gym. I was like, oh, okay. And so, because I was so mad about this highway robbery, I was like, well, I'm just going to pay for Amber and I, because the other two got in anyway. And so, I paid for Amber and I and went on in. I had basically justified stealing from this tournament because I was so mad that they were charging what I think, still think is a ridiculous amount of money to go watch my kid play. Now, I hope I'm not alone in this kind of fudgy behavior that maybe perhaps you've been in situations like this and you're kind of like, ah, no one's going to know, whatever. This is not right that I have to do this. And I... I, I, you know, that was a bit of a confession. I have to admit, the next time we went back to the same place, um, Amber and I were like, okay, let's make sure to bring cash, first of all. We had set this cash aside on the desk, and uh, so to make sure we brought it. But then when we got to the, the, the complex, we, I asked Amber, so where's the cash? And we just both look at each other, realizing neither of us had brought the money. So again... $10 for each adult, $5 for each kid, $3 of ATM fee, and then when I check my bank statement later, I realize my bank also charges me $1.50 for taking money out from this ATM machine. This time, I did pay for my, my kids as well. I was convicted that it was wrong what I did last time. $34.50. It's quite expensive. <laughs> Most of us don't think of ourselves as thieves. But I think... Many of you can imagine or think of situations like the one I described where you're like, ah, it's fine. No one will know. And we justify stealing. And certainly, I think even, well, I was going to say actual thieves, but let's say higher grade thieves, I think they justify their actions as well that maybe they've been given in the short end of the stick in life and they hadn't been given much and they haven't had much opportunity and they justify their behavior, their stealing in some way. And we're very good at that kind of justification, right? And so in this commandment, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, it's one that we often easily think, oh, I'm fine on this one. I don't go around stealing things. And yet when we begin to look at 
what God actually means in this commandment, even the narrow meaning of it, we see that we are often not guiltless in this commandment. But I do believe that this commandment points us, as we've looked at every commandment, points us to a desire in all of us for fullness, that we've been created with a desire for fullness. And that could be longing for our tummies to be full, longing for our relationships to be full, longing for our houses to be full, longing for our lives to be full, our hearts to be full, that we are always longing for that kind of fullness and will go to great lengths in order to achieve that kind of fullness. And so when we see ourselves doing certain things to kind of achieve that fullness and maybe justifying certain behavior, we do have to ask ourselves that question. Is this what God calls me to, to live in this way? But let's talk a little bit about stealing. How, how do we talk about stealing? We can talk about stealing Again, in many different ways. The, the most obvious way is the individuals stealing things. And so if you read, for instance, uh, any Puritan work, you'll see them outline just so many different examples of what individual stealing is. And, you know, we can look at modern applications of that as well. But beyond the individual, we can also talk about stealing in terms of political realm. Now, I know we have a professor of politics here, but so I'll try not to step into it too much. But often, when we look about uh, political systems, people do make arguments for or against based on certain systems being like stealing, stealing from the people in order to, whatever, make the system work. So we could look at capitalism versus socialism, two kind of big categories, and and, you know, and, and even under this category of stealing, both sides could make arguments against the other based on this idea of stealing. Well, if we look at kind of on a more philosophical level, which also is a dangerous category to go into in this church um, with people well-versed in this, but we could look at just at the idea of the right to property, right? Do we have a right to property? And philosophers argued about this as well for a long time. Well, what do we even define property as. You can't talk about stealing if you don't first talk about what is property and what rights do we have towards property. Well, we could talk, a bit, talk about on a spiritual level, in our relationship with God. What is stealing in our relationship with God? And, you know, traditionally we've talked about stealing in our relationship with God in terms of us being stewards of all that God has given us. Our time, our energy, our possessions, our money. And in, even in Malachi 3.8, it says specifically, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. And so even in that very specific example, God gives a challenge to the Israelite people of the time. But we can even take it a little bit broader in terms of stealing. We can look at stealing in terms of just broad financial views. What, are, what is our view of money? What is our view of money when we come at it from a Christian point of view? Well, we could even talk about in terms of lifestyle. And often we talk about in terms of um, not stealing is living a lifestyle of generosity and simplicity. And that it can be talked about in that way as well. So this really a lot of ways we can come at it. And one thing that comes to my mind as I think about it, or conviction that the Lord has brought in my life in this area is, so growing up in Hong Kong, we, it's, this is going to sound strange, but we actually love our criminals. And so the thing about Chinese culture is that Chinese culture is very communal. So even our crime is very communal in the sense that 
Like I could, as an 11-year-old, roam the streets of Hong Kong, which is a big city, because there's very little individual crime, petty theft, or things that parents worry about when they send their kids out. The kind of crime that's going on is organized crime. The Chinese mafia doing whatever stuff. And it doesn't really, you know, harm the individual. You might even say individuals like what the Chinese organized crime is doing. For instance, growing up, it was very common and not so common now, but Chinese mafia would you know, anything you could knock off that was work, worth knocking off, they would knock off. So you, you know, go walk the streets and say, you want to buy a polo shirt, right? And there'll be a, a cheap knockoff that you could buy for a dollar. And so that was very common for people to, to you know, buy these knockoff uh, products that were, you know, essentially made possible by the Chinese mafia. And people were like, great, you know, I can pay, you know, a fraction of the cost of what this product would actually cost at retail and have the appearance of you know, being wealthy or affording these things and wearing these name brands. And at some point in my Christian life, I really began to be convicted about this, that I'm actually stealing from these companies by buying these products, by furthering this thievery that the Chinese mafia makes possible. And to really convict that I was you know, stealing from these companies for the sake of, of appearance um, of these name brand things. And it's ironic because I knew, obviously, I wasn't wearing the real thing. And yet, at the same time, just the appearance of having the real thing was enough to justify stealing. I think there's definitely a sermon right in there. But, you know, we can look at modern-day applications of this in our own lives. And often... Maybe even your office that you work at has policies around this. You know, don't steal the office stationery. Don't steal time from your work. Make sure you're being productive with every moment of your life uh, at work. Don't be doing lots of personal stuff at work. I mean, obviously everyone has to do a little bit of that, but um, offices care about that. We can talk about buying knockoffs. We can talk about ways we cheat the system. I don't, I'm not going to ask anyone to raise hands, but you know, have you ever gone to the movie theater and maybe watched one or two more movies than what you paid for because it's so easy to do, right? Just hop to the next theater. Or maybe you're you know, in a place where, I remember when I lived in Denver, it was really easy, which I was shocked by coming from Hong Kong, it was really easy to ride transit for free. It's not for free. It's just that no one's checking up on you and there's no gates to go through, so you could just hop on the transit and not pay if you, if you wanted to. So there's so many examples, even of this narrow definition of stealing, that we often just inoculate ourselves from being convicted of. I just, stop, just everyone does it. It's normal. It's a part of life. It's fine. We're getting robbed by these corporations anyway. So, right? It's, those justifications come to mind so readily. And yet God calls us to be people of integrity, to consider this commandment, how it applies to our life. Now, what are we to do with even this, this level of stealing, if you will? Thomas Watson, a Puritan theologian and pastor, says this. He says, what is to be done to avoid stealing? He says, one, live in a calling. Two, be content with the estate that God has given you. 
One, live in a calling. Two, be content in the estate what God has given you. It's really funny if you, what's funny to me is this is book, his book on Ten Commandments. After five pages of defining what stealing is, he comes to two paragraphs that can be summed up with the quote I just read. Live in a calling. Be content in which the estate God has given you. To me, it seems, I mean, I think it's wise, the answer, but it also seems not enough. It seems the solution doesn't match the problem that we're talking about, right? I think, again, there's great truth to to that, living in a calling and being content. Yet I think God calls us to a, a bigger, a grander vision of what the solution is. And of course, the solution is the gospel, and we can define the gospel as God loves you so much, he's paid the price for your sins and to show the depth of his love for you, to restore you into relationship with him. But what's the vision that gets us even further in terms of living out a life of integrity, of fulfilling our desire for fullness, not through our own efforts, but through trust in God? Um, John Frame, which I know I've quoted a lot in this series, says this about the Eighth Commandment in defining what stealing is. He says, The Eighth Commandment assumes that God has given to human beings ownership of property. Of course, ultimately, all property belongs to God, but he does call human beings to take dominion over the earth in his name. We are, in other words, stewards of God, given the responsibility to care for God's creation. To his stewards, God also gives the right to enjoy that creation. We are to administer this inheritance to God's glory as well as to our own benefit. I think it's, a, it's really helpful that he really begins there because it shows us that God's word helps us to hold truth in balance without going to unhelpful extremes. I mean, he, he starts with this basic assumption, this primary presupposition of all we have is from God and we are stewards of that. And that's, I think, an important place to start when we talk about you shall not steal. And yet there's a secondary assumption he makes, presupposition. He says, as stewards, we are responsible for what God has given us, but also we are to enjoy what he has given us. Again, we can go to such extremes that, you know, to, to live a life of giving to others means giving everything away. I think it is right to say, well, God has given us things of this world and this creation to enjoy as well. And it leads us to this verse in Ephesians 4.28, which says this about stealing. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. And again, even in just one verse, so Paul so powerfully tells us the direction in which we are to move when we feel convicted about stealing. And the first thing is work is the antithesis, the opposite of theft. And John Frame again says this, he says, labor replaces theft as a means of sustenance. And more than that, it turns the thief into a benefactor. Rather than taking what belongs to others, he gives to others what is his. So the Eighth Commandment mandates a lifestyle of generosity, of compassion, of love. To keep the Eighth Commandment is both to give everyone his due and beyond that, to sacrifice our own goods for love of others as Jesus gave his life for us. That Eighth Commandment mandates both justice and mercy. 
It's so powerful. And in every single one of these commandments, we could, particularly the ones who, that, are, that, are, that are stated negatively, we could flip it to the positive and say, what does that call us to? Not just to not steal, but what does it call us to do positively? And so, again, what is said here reminds us, yes, living in a calling is important. Being content in the estate which God has placed us in is important. We are created to work. Yet there is a disclaimer to be said in that because not all of us are in a position to work even at the level, level which our hearts desire. Sometimes health concerns keep us from being able to work at the level which we, we desire. And I think it's important to say that because it'd be easy perhaps in the direction I've been going in to say, well, I'm not in a place that I can work in the way you're talking about should I feel convicted and I'm stealing from God. And I say, no, that, that's the part of being content in which the estate that God has given you. That sometimes we are put into situations in our life that we're not able to even do what our heart's desire is and, and not even what ultimately, ideally, what God calls us to. And we do have to remember that work is not just an official job where you have an employer who pays you, right? Work is all of the things which God calls us to do in life. And so sometimes there are situations in our life where taking care of others makes it hard for us to be able to have a job in the way that we, will, we would even want to. And I'm not even talking about stay-at-home moms because that's just, just, I don't think there's any argument that's like, that's full-time work. But sometimes there are people in, who, who have ailing parents and just the time it takes to take care of ailing parents can keep you from working at the level that you want. And so even though we've looked at work as the antithesis of theft and that leads us hopefully to be able to give out of our response of love to God, to others, we see that in this, in this commandment it is so much more than not stealing so much more than working and giving to, and it points us to this idea of giving to others. And so the Westminster Larger Catechism in its questions around this commandment states three things here that I want to read to you. That to, um, to live out this commandment is the giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. Giving and lending freely according to our ability. It's also an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. I think this, that one is really challenging. And also says, um, it forbids the inordinate prizing and affecting worldly goods, distrustful and distracting cares and studies in getting, keeping, and using them envying at the prosperity of others. I know for me, the last one really convicts me that's just part of growing up in Hong Kong. That is just the culture you're in always. Comparison of what you have, what you don't have, and how shopping is just like, uh, is like a pastime. And so this is something that God has taught me through my just living with my wife. Like I'm, when I need to buy something, I'm obsessive about finding the best deal. Like, I will spend hours scouring for the right deal, and the internet just makes it ten times worse, right? It's paralyzing. Like, in the past, I'll go from store to store to store to try to find the best deal. And now it's like, 
the endless abyss of the internet to look for the best deal. And really, I think, you know, just again, being married to my wife who doesn't struggle with that, she's just like, just go to the store and buy what you want. Like, how much time would you save just doing that instead of spending hours finding, you know, the deal to save 10% on whatever it is that we, we needed to buy? And so it, this, this commandment and what is said in the confession, in the catechism questions, is a, is a great reminder of even something on that level. But I really love what it says and I think really challenges our thinking on this commandment where it says we are to, by all, all lawful means, procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. Obviously, I think we all understand because we live in this culture of uh, procuring wealth for ourselves and taking care of ourselves. I don't think anyone uh, would challenge that. But for the catechism to say that to obey this command is to do that for others as well, that's challenging and counter, countercultural and it makes makes me ask the question, what keeps us from seeking to further the wealth of others? And I think in the end, it's, it's a lack of compassion, or to say it differently, it's a focus on procuring our own, own wealth. It's a focus on our own wealth or lack thereof, right? And Ezekiel 16.49 says this, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Now the Bible doesn't talk about being rich or poor as being, it doesn't talk about wealth specifically as being inherently wrong or poverty as being inherently better. Scripture and God uses metaphors of rewards and wealth as, 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 as um, metaphors for how God is going to fulfill us. And so he doesn't just say those images are wrong or unhelpful. The poor and the wealthy are both sinful before God and have general temptations towards different things. And God calls us to care for those who are poor, who are being unjustly, unjustly treated. And that guilt trips based on oversimplified descriptions of our society's wealth or poverty are not effective in changing our hearts long term or our behaviors in order to bring about the flourishing of others. In order to grow more compassionate of heart towards those in need, we have to first recognize our poverty before God. And I want you to hear this. If we give out of our wealth, then we give out of our own sufficiency. If we give out of our poverty, and I mean including spiritual poverty, then we give out of God's sufficiency. I'm going to say this again. If we give out of our wealth, then we will give out of our own sufficiency. If we give out of our poverty then we give out of God's sufficiency. This is where the gospel challenges rich and poor, liberal and conservative. The gospel is countercultural because rich and poor, liberal and conservative, and whatever categories in between are tempted towards self-sufficiency. That's just the human condition. That we would prefer to handle things in our own strength rather than to trust and rely upon God to be the provider. The gospel and self-sufficiency are antithetical, are opposites. It reminds me of a time when 
I was a youth pastor, and we were doing a donation drive at that time for um, a disaster that happened in Haiti. And so I had fashioned this youth group meeting, hoping to challenge the youth, to move them towards compassion, to move them towards action. It really felt like in the moment, the Holy Spirit was moving, hearts were being convicted, and what followed from that um, that, that youth group meeting was a donation drive. And so after three weeks of this donation drive, we had collected three items. Like three, literally three, like, they weren't even expensive items. I can't remember what it was, but three items. And what I realized was that the youth enjoyed feeling compassion in the moment their hearts weren't yet changed towards genuine compassion that moves them to action. So, I mean, I think that points to how we, we, we do, as human beings, like to feel compassion for others. But what the work that God is seeking to do in us is not just to feel something, but to feel something that leads to action for others, that genuine compassion is defined by action for others as well. And so it brings us again, why, why do we often lack compassion? I've said it already, we are often self-sufficient, and our self-sufficiency can be rooted in our lack of trust in God to be one, the God who has the power to provide, and two, the God who is willing to provide, who has the power and willingness to provide. And 1 Timothy 6.17 says this, Command those who are rich in the present, in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Okay, we, we should just take from that, right, that the generalization that God is making in this is that the rich are going to be tempted towards putting their hope in wealth. Now you could say, well, what does it mean to be rich? And, you know, that's, that's a more difficult definition. We often hear... Oh, you know, Americans compared to the rest of the world are, are you know, the, so much richer than, I don't know the percentage is, 99% of the world. And that, part, that may be true, but I, I think we just need to hear from this command, whether we think we're rich or not, that there's always a temptation to put our hope in wealth. And that if we do think we have wealth, that there's a temptation then towards being arrogant about it, that we made it happen ourselves, and that we are, again, in whatever estate we are, that we are to instead trust in God, put our hope in God who richly provides. Another author who wrote the book, The Ten Der Commandments, got it? The Ten Der Commandments, Ron Meal, he says this, about this commandment. What it must be saying is this. I'm sorry, what it says about this Timothy verse. I don't want you stealing because I am your provider. I want you to understand and believe I am the one who will supply all your needs. I don't want you to scheme, manipulate, and deceive to obtain things. For then, what would you become? A schemer, a manipulator, and a deceiver. I don't want you to feel responsible for securing your own future. I just think that quote is so powerful. And it's, it's hard because when we hear things like scheming, manipulating, and deceiving, again, those are words that 
are strong words and often it's easy to say, well, I don't do that. I don't scheme or deceive or manipulate. I don't know. It convicts me, those words. And I hear in this quote, God's call for me to become the kind of person who trusts God to provide rather than to make it happen on my own. And that's, again, I'm always afraid when I say that people think that means don't do anything. It doesn't mean don't do anything. Like God calls us to be faithful, but on the heart level, when we go do stuff, we don't do it thinking it's all on me. I can only trust myself. You go do stuff trusting God to be the one at work. I mean, honestly, this whole building process, that's what it's felt like. It's like, I don't know, God. I don't know how to do this. Like, I'm just going to go do stuff and you're going to make it happen if that's what you want. I think if we're to be called to the kind of compassion that God calls us to towards those in need, then that's what we have to look at in our hearts, our self-sufficiency and the, the ways in which we so subtly justify manipulating, deceiving, and scheming to achieve the fullness that we want in this life. But we must have our eyes turn to the gospel that includes a promise of life to the full through Jesus. You heard that read earlier. He says that he has come that we may have life and have it to the full. That's his promise to us. And that any other idol that we seek will only steal, steal, kill, and destroy. We can trust him to provide because he is the one who gave up his very life so that we might have that fullness. But I think the image that God gives us is even more powerful than just the giving up of his own life in order to give us the fullness that he desires for us as well. The picture he paints in Revelation is such a grand picture. And again, Revelation is often a very strange book. But it is a book that paints these pictures of images, different images, to try to get a sense of the grand and magnificent work that God is seeking to do. To do. A vision so grand that when we're scheming to find fullness in this life, we begin to see, wow, these puny efforts that I'm trying to achieve fullness in is nothing compared to the fullness of the vision that God gives. And so the pic- one of the pictures he paints for us is that God's people are going to experience the fullness of God. And he paints it with image of wealth. Revelation 21 paints this picture. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and his brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The wall, verse 18, the wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third 
um, agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass. If that's the picture that God paints for the people of God, for who we will become and what we will have in the fullness of God, if that is our identity and our destiny, why do we need to scheme and manipulate and deceive in order to provide for our own fullness in this life? He has already promised life to the full in Jesus. And he paints this picture in revelation of the fullness of what it would be like in the next life. I think there's reason why God painted this kind of picture for us in Revelation because he knows that we are embodied people. That we need the gospel painted in pictures of real, tangible things. And so we come to the Lord's table now because God says, See here at my table the fullness of the cup overflow, the body that is broken for you. That will pay for the penalty of all of the sins of the world. Your sins past and present and future are all taken care of. And here at this table is the fullness of God displayed. And this table points to this imagery and revelation of an even greater beauty and vision of the fullness that God has for us. We have to take our eyes off the things of this world that we get so obsessed with and see the grandeur of what God is preparing for us. I hope as we come to the table now that we remember that in Jesus our desire for fullness is fulfilled. Come to the table hungry to receive the fullness of God. Let us pray.